Okay, well, uh, for a moment there I thought the screen would be just as dark as everyone thinks the Pitt Rivers Museum is, but as you can see it's full of light and full of things. And I thought I'd start this talk not with Pitt Rivers, as I often do, um, but with another key figure in the history of archaeology, a key figure in the history of Egyptian archaeology, um, Sir William Matthew Flinders Petrie. Now, Petrie wrote the first field handbook in archaeology in 1904, the first account of how you go out and do archaeology. However, he was clearly very suspicious of museums, describing them as ghastly charnel houses of murdered evidence. <laughs> Museum collections from the 19th century that had been built up by cherry-picking, and which little was known about where they're from, the context of their discovery. And a century later, there are still many people who feel that such collections from the early 19th and early 20th centuries are just too difficult to work with because there's little known about the provenance, where they came from. But for the last two years, I've been working at, on a project at the Pitt Rivers Museum instigated by fellow St. Crother, Dan Hicks. Um, which is to address these collections that we have in the Pitt Rivers Museum, these early archaeological collections, um, which is when most of our archaeological collections were built up, and to look at what their research potential is now. And to do that, we brought in 30 specialists with different expertise in areas of world archaeology to come and look at our collections, tell us what's significant, what's interesting, but crucially what the research potential is. Now, another reason for doing that is when you think about the Pitt Rivers Museum, most people think about the anthropology collections, and that's understandable. Only about 2% of our archaeology collections are on display. That's about 3,000 objects. But about 35% of the collection, roughly, is archaeological. So out of 300,000 objects, that's 128,000 pieces of archaeology. Now, when you tally up the various areas that are represented in that archaeology, um, you see that the Egyptian collection is one of the largest, the third largest, in fact, after our UK and Australian collections. So large, we've had several specialists come in um, to talk about and write a report on our Egyptian collections. This includes Elizabeth Fruit, who is also here at St. Cross, um, and she has written about our, what would be termed the classic ancient Egypt that you all will be very familiar with from the television and from school and from museums, which is the period from the Old Kingdom up into the late periods, from about 2700 to about uh, 332 BC. I looked at the period before that, the pre-dynastic and early dynastic periods. So I'm talking about the 4th millennium BC, the early 3rd millennia BC. So when I say ancient Egypt, I mean most ancient Egypt. Now, this period that I study, the fourth millennium BC, and from my perspective, these famous monuments at the Giza Plateau, they're not the epitome of antiquity, as everyone um, often thinks. For me, these are the end product of a very long period of social development starting at the end of the 5th millennium BC with pastoralist communities coming into the Nile Valley and beginning to settle a bit more for the first time, beginning to engage with agriculture, 
Um, communities that become larger and larger over the course of the fourth millennium BC, probably competitive chiefdoms, and then around 3100, we get one of the world's first states. And so this is the period that I'm interested in with these questions of state formation. Now the Giza Plateau is, quite, is another good location to introduce um, the Pit River's Egyptian collections because it was here in 1881 that Pitt Rivers met Petrie. Petrie was out there in 1881 for the first time um, making measurements on the Giza Plateau. Um, there had been some hypothesis by Piazzi Smythe, the astronomer royal in Edinburgh, who said that sacred knowledge was to be found in the measurements of the pyramids. And Petrie was a bit sceptical of this, went out and did some of the first accurate measurements of the Giza Plateau, essentially debunking those theories that still crop up uh, well over a century later. He notes in his diary, Petrie, in February 1881, that it's a grisly drizzly, rainy morning, um, when a gentleman comes up to him and hands him a card and says, do you know what Petrie is? Petrie doesn't recognise the fellow. He says, must be a difference of dress and whiskers. But he didn't recognise that this was Pitt Rivers, who'd gone out to Egypt on a Thomas Cook holiday, celebrating his new inheritance, whereby he was now a very wealthy man, and he could now spend even more money expanding his enormous collection that he had been building up for the last few decades. Pitt Rivers had been collecting Egyptian objects from about the 1860s. Just to give you a bit of background to the uh, Pitt Rivers collections, if you don't know, um, Pitt Rivers begins by collecting weapons, firearms, in 1851. This is against the backdrop of the Great Exhibition where Britain is showing its technological progress to the world. It's beginning to be the time when people are talking about Dar Darwinian evolution. And so this is kind of intellectual milieu in which he's looking at his collection of firearms and noticing that very gradual changes in the technology seem to lead to greater progression, technological advancement. And so he extends this idea of seeing this technological advancement to other types of objects, ethnographic, archaeological objects. And this is how he explains his collection. He says that it's arranged in a sequence with a view to show the successive ideas by which the minds and men of a primitive condition of culture have progressed in the development of their arts from the simple to the complex. So this is Pitt Rivers' rationale for collecting. He presents it as a very scientific methodology. He says that he's not just, he's not like these other 19th century collectors. He's not just after pretty, beautiful things. No, this is a scientific sequence of objects that's going to prove cultural evolution in these terms. But when we look at the Egyptian collection that he gives to Oxford in 1884, it's a little harder to agree with him. Here are two of the objects we've got. There's about 150 or so Egyptian, ancient Egyptian objects that Pitt Rivers gives to the museum. Um, and they include things like animal mummies, this one's from the late period, to these shabtis, which were um, statuettes that would have been put in ancient Egyptian tombs and would come alive in the afterlife, if there's a spell on the front, um, come alive in the afterlife and do your labour for you because you don't want them. Um, and frankly, every collection around the world 
each Egyptian collection has one of these. From the cabinets of curiosity from the 16th and 17th century, you've got to have a Shabbaty. So it's clear that Pitt Rivers is, is just subject to what's ever available on the antiquities market as everybody else, particularly in this regard. It's also clear that although he says that are ordinary and typical and we haven't gone for rare or beautiful things, that there are some very rare and some very beautiful things in the collection. At the top here you can see a small wooden face. It looks a lot larger, but it's only about this size. It's very easy to miss amongst our displays. Um, it's exceptionally rare to have a wooden statuette face as beautiful as this. Um, and we've had a scholar who works in the Valley of the Kings, Earl Ertman, who's looked at this and has noticed that on the fragment of the headdress at the top, that it's actually a pharaoh's crown, and that this is the face of a new kingdom king. So that's been quite interesting to find out. Now, much of the River Standing Collection is of statues of gods and goddesses. <coughs> this is the cat goddess Bastet from the first millennium BC. And this is perhaps our largest Egyptian object in terms of its kind of complexity, a Middle Kingdom boat bottle, um, dating to about uh, 1900 BC and 1400 BC roughly. Um, and apart from that, the other large object that you might have seen in the museum is our coffin, our mummy of Erturau. She dates the 25th dynasty and that actually came from the university museum. Um, it came to the university in 1869 from the Prince of Wales, so it was a bit separate from this collection. Other rare things that we've got on display from the Egyptian collection include this, uh, which came into the museum in 1887, um, and it's one of only about 20 known in the world letters to the dead. It's Someone writing in cursive hieroglyphs, hieratics, so shorthand hieroglyphs, um, writing to a relative, a deceased relative, asking them to intercede on their behalf in a problem that they're having in their life. In this case, it's a dispute about inheritance. Um, and it's quite a nice example. But these kinds of things that we've got on display... They're what you'd expect to be on display for ancient Egypt. Things from tombs, things with hieroglyphs and writing on it. But these actually misrepresent the character of our Egyptian collection as a whole. Because what we've got is actually a large amount of material from settlement contexts, from everyday life of the Egyptians. This includes, for example, this uh, 3,000 well, 4,000-year-old box, looking pretty good for 4,000 years, from the site of Lahoon, excavated by Petrie in the 1880s, one of his first excavations. And we've got about 250 objects from this site, a rare site that's very important still today to Egyptologists for understanding everyday life in Egypt. So we've got tools and bits of clothing, bits of ropes and um, pieces like that. We also have this, um, not on display because it's too fragile, um, very large bag tunic, which was found again by Petrie at the site of Lahoon, which had been um, carefully folded and packed away with the mummy. Um, and this is an incredibly rare piece that Elizabeth Froude was quite excited to discover on her excavation of our storeroom. Now, what you may have noticed 
is that I actually haven't mentioned my particular area of uh, in academic interest, which is pre-dynastic and early dynastic Egypt. And that's because before 1900, there was nothing. There was nothing in the collection from the prehistory of Egypt, apart from a few Paleolithic implements. And the reason is, before 1900, no one really knew it was there. When Petrie writes his History of Egypt in 1894, his chapter on prehistoric Egypt is just pretty much guesswork. Talks about racial types, a bit about geology, um, but he has no artifacts that he can definitively say these belong to the fourth millennium BC to before um, the ancient Egyptian state arises. And so, just to end, I'll go through um, some of what changes that view and some of the material we've got in the museum that uh, relates to this and uh, that is now being used in some other current research I'm doing here at Oxford. So in 1894, it's been unfortunate, it's the year that Petrie publishes his first you know, definitive account of ancient Egyptian history, he digs up something that really throws them. It's this enormous cemetery of about 3,000 burials in the Gaba, which is in Upper Egypt. And what he finds, he describes as wholly un-Egyptian. These are some of uh, the objects from that cemetery that he sent to Pitt Rivers. And, he's, and he was grappling around really in the dark to explain this type of stuff. And he said, they must be invaders. This is why he calls it pottery of the new race. This, he thought, explains why the old kingdom, the age of the pyramids, seemingly collapses. There was this invasion of people. Not everybody agreed with Petrie. Um, and in, by the time this is published in 1896-1897, um, a Frenchman called Jacques de Morgan realises that this is prehistoric. With this kind of material, he's found it too. And he goes out and says, no, 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 this is the period before the first dynasty, before the first known kings of Egypt. Petrie begrudgingly accepts this, says that the French have clearly come up with it by happy guesswork, and goes about trying to put this pottery into an order. He invents seriation. And this revolutionizes archaeology. It revolutionizes the way we look at prehistory because you can now use pottery to date graves relative to each other. And if there's time at the end or if there's any questions, I can explain a little bit more about that later. Petrie then goes on and excavates this site, Abydos. This particular area that you can see here called the Umal Kav which is Arabic for mother of pots because of this large pottery scatter you can see across the site. Doesn't look like terribly much. But underneath it are the first burials of the first kings of Egypt. So these are their tombs. And this had been excavated throughout the course of the 19th century, but no one really had understood their significance. And Petrie goes there at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century... Um, and realises that this is the place that he can make that connection between the prehistoric stuff, that pre-dynastic pottery he found, and what he finds here. He can continue his sequence right, right the way through. And he can also now put these tombs in order. Here's a nice example from the Pitt Rivers <coughs> Museum collection. On, 
on one of the ways he was able to do that. The first kings of Egypt didn't write the name in cartouches, the oval symbol in which the names are written. They wrote them in these uh, serifs, we call them, this, this rectangular um, symbol with the god Horus on top. This is in the British Museum. It's not that we've got it. But here's what we've got. You can see the serif on the, on the it's a little ivory model of a stone tool, actually. Um, and that's the serif of one of the, the very first kings of Egypt. So Petrie, in 1901, is able to say that the monumental history has now been carried back to the very beginning of the written record, which has been entirely confirmed. The whole course of prehistoric civilization has been mapped out for almost 2,000 years, more completely than has been done for such ages in any other land. It's also in 1901 that the Pitt Rivers Museum gets its largest concession of pre-dynastic and early dynastic objects. We get lots of material from pre-dynastic cemeteries, from a pre-dynastic settlement, but also, crucially, from these tombs of the kings. One problem is that when we say we've got, for example, that little um, ivory piece that I showed you, says it's from the tomb of Aha, which is this one here, we're not quite sure which tomb it's from. The central burial chambers, I don't know if this will work, no, it's dead, um, are the three large ones you can see there, but behind it, are retainer burials, um, which seem to be victims, people who have been buried at the same time as the king, possibly sacrificial victims. And as you can see, the numbers <coughs> increase. This is the tomb of Deger. We've got about 300 pieces from this particular tomb. There's the king's central burial chamber. 318 sacrificial burials around this site. And just to give you a sense of the scale of that, it's been recently re-excavated, and that was it opened up just a year or so ago by the German Archaeological Institute. <coughs> These are some of the pieces that we've got. What's striking is stone tools made out of materials um, that nor wouldn't normally be used for stone tools, just showing the range of materials the king could bring together. A very rare uh, horn bow, um, one of the oldest uh, known Egyptian bows. Some of this pre-dynastic pottery that we can see here. And then this strange uh, fake fringe, which made it to the London Illustrated News, uh, which Petrie, at that time, because he didn't, you know, didn't have the radiocarbon dating sequences he's now, dated 4700 BC. And so just the very last thing I would just say um, is that one of the things that I'm involved in here in Oxford, and you can perhaps ask me this uh, about it later, is a new radiocarbon dating program at the Research Lab for Art History and Archaeology, where we are going to do the biggest series of radiocarbon dates for the pre-dynastic period. Um, and one of the things that this, that this kind of material in the Pitt Rivers is important, and here are some ivory arrowheads, but they've got some reed shafts, is that because we, historically, we can take it back, we have a historical date for about 3,100 onwards for these kings, and we know their sequence, that if we can get the radiocarbon dates from these first kings, 
we can then take that back into prehistory. So this, this is a really important marker to date these kinds of objects. So we took some samples from the reed shafts. We took some samples from these votive hair offerings. And they've come out beautifully. Just where we expect them to be. We've got, and um, these are from the tomb of Dejer, lovely dates to about 2,900 <coughs> And this will be one of our key markers for when we start working backwards to other sites. So these collections are being used in cutting-edge research. Um, they're not completely murdered evidence. Um, and even though the Ashmolean Museum has a famous collection of pre-dynastic and early dynastic objects, I think what we have at the Pitt Rivers nicely complements what's there um, and is equally an important resource here in Oxford. Thank you very much.